All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1959 epic Ben-Hur, the revenge tale, the uh, the epic chariot race monster, the religious film. So the essence of religion in film, we want to talk about that exact subject to start off this episode. So, John, the first question I just want to ask you, what makes a film a religious film? I think there's a lot of religious aspects, you know, that you would have to qualify for to be, to be a religious film. But I think you could even go beyond even religion and, and kind of... So I think of holiday films a lot, honestly, is what first comes to me. I think of Christmas a lot because of being raised Lutheran and Christian growing up. I, I just remember just seeing religion fueled through Christmas a lot of the times. And I also think of... In terms of religious films nowadays, I think of Hallmark channels where they kind of fuel these romantic films that, you know, sometimes have some specialty and related to religion and and maybe faith. But there's so many different aspects of of religious films that, you know, I don't really just think of telling the story of Jesus when I think of religious films. So I think it's a really broader term. I think of more aspects that come from that religion much like a holiday like christmas for instance but what about you what do you think classifies uh, as something or film being a religious film yeah i think it does have to have that those essence and those moments where you're in a church a temple in a mosque you're celebrating something that has to do with a specific religion and it touches on it it's it's interesting you bring up christmas because i had this you know Kind of this thought when I was watching Ben Hur when it start is is Ben Hur a Christmas film? <laughs> because it starts off with the nativity scene and the birth of Christ, and it does follow his storyline, but from a distance. So I don't it we don't really have to answer that question, but it's kind of funny to think of it that way. And then elaborating on on religious films, I think that for me when I hear religious films, sometimes my eyes do start to roll, just because. There are some films, you know, watching growing up, you know, going to Hebrew school in my case where we had to watch some films that I was like, this is boring. This is not worth (laughs) my time. So can a film be too religious where it's beyond a point of no return where it's no longer entertainment? It's just a religious, I won't say propaganda, but just a platform to promote that religion itself. You know, is there a fine line uh, for religious films where... If you go to this extent, maybe it's not necessarily something that is commercialized. There should be something for consumers to go out and watch. Yeah, I think religion is such a tricky topic for any art form, really. So I think that's why it kind of goes either the comedy route where it's either making fun of or kind of playing up humor in the situation of religion like a zero life of brian and dogma which are like two perfect examples of that and, and kind of playing and making fun of religion while also kind of talking about religion but then i think of the other side where you can kind of go abundantly way too far into it and you're just basically retelling stories from the bible or, or someone's religious text and it's there's just not that much that they're kind of interpreting they're just taking the exact text and just trying to like teach you that text and, and what that lesson should be and i think 
that's where a lot of films kind of get misremembered. You just kind of watch them in the point of time and then you kind of move on. And you're like, okay, I learned that lesson. Time to move on. I don't really need to ever think about that movie again. But there's also a, a, an important aspect of teaching religion and using films. I think of growing up, I don't even know if you'll know what this is, but uh, I watched Veggie Tales a lot growing up uh, in church and in Sunday school. And that was like a fun way to like watch something entertaining that's a cartoon with all these talking vegetables that at the end of each episode or movie, they would kind of tell you some religious aspect and kind of teach you some lesson about religion or, or Christ or some aspect of uh, being a good Christian, basically. So... It's also helpful in a way. I think if you're trying to teach kids, uh, you know, religion of any sorts, it's a good medium to kind of translate. And those, I would, I don't want to call them lower tier because they're helping people and they're kind of spreading the message that people want to spread. But it it can be dumbed down in a way to help other people, but it can also be dumbed down in a way where it's it's hard to watch as an adult, right? Do you ever feel that way about some religious films? Yeah, I, I do I do feel that way. I feel that it's funny bringing Veggie Tales. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I feel like it. Those are educational tools, and I think that's where kind of where my question was based out of where educational films are 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 great and they're there for a certain purpose. But then when it comes to being entertained and and watching something, going to the movie theaters, you're not going there for an educational film. So when religious aspects do trickle in it can be very hit or miss because you don't want to be beaten over the head so much with it. But you also, you know, you do, you can find aspects of it that are interesting and it, you know, a movie like first reformed or the master, they tackle religion without being so preachy. And you see a movie like silence where that's complete. It, there's so much religion in that. And that's what drives these characters to a fault. And then even within literally from the last weekend, Thor <laughs> love and thunder, tackles the ideas of religions and God and what in in its own unique way without touching on Christianity but talking about what does religion what does God like how, how do they impact the people and how do followers then get impacted by maybe God's not intervening or you know God's doing too much and I think that that while all you know religious films you automatically want to go to that like biblical times or talking about you know gods and everything that goes in between that but i also find that religious themes in movies are you know it's present throughout and i think that the theme idea is being kind being good natured you know not going at, after something for revenge but re approaching it with forgiveness which is kind of what ben hur does while jesus is present throughout the entire movie you're following judah ben hur's storyline and his arc is he's going out for revenge, but in the end he realizes that it's forgiveness, that it's that what he was seeking the entire time was never going to be there because he was seeking something unattainable, that he just wanted pure, you know, hateful revenge. But he realized through love and through compassion and that he has with his family, not to completely get to the end of our whole discussion, but that is the ultimate thing that brings him back that he focuses on. And that is what heals him at the end of the movie. So I think that religion is, in fact, I think that religion for film is my religion in ways. Like I go to the movies, you know, weekly. I'm not praying, but I'm, well, in a way, I guess I am praying to you, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> but I, you know, I use film as like my getaway. And I think that's how people use religion as this answer to so many things, this escape from life in its drama its sadness 
to feel you go to there to feel happy to engage with community and so i find it you know there's no real answer to like religion and film and i think that it can be it's a multitude of things it's a personal experience but this movie ben-hur is fascinating when it comes to religion because of how much it talks about it because of how it represents so many different things and one of my final things i want to touch on with this is that the vatican has an approved film list i don't know what they're approving it for but they have an approved list of the category for religion and this is the only hollywood film there is a man for all seasons which won best picture in 66 but that is technically a british film so the fact that ben Hur is the only hollywood film to be on this approved list of religious films for the vatican has to say something a little bit of how it's viewed by christianity how it's viewed by the world how it's viewed as religion and film definitely i I wanted to go back and talk about religion in general being beyond just these biblical texts. And I'm glad you brought that up because I also feel that same way about film. Obviously, we love movies a lot and we're doing a podcast all about movies. So we clearly love talking about them and and going to movie theaters and experiencing that. But it is a form of religion. I think I personally struggled with religion a lot growing up. I was kind of the outcast in my family because I got to the point where I basically threatened to not go to church anymore. Uh, And then came threats (laughs) against me for doing that. And, you know, I was probably uh, shunned by parts of my family for doing so as well. But to me, it was so passionate that I like so didn't believe what I was trying to be forced to to be taught that it became even harder for me to kind of like listen to the people speak and listen to pastors tell their story because I was being forced to, to be there in the first place. So. My mom would always tell me, you know, you don't, you can just come. You don't have to like participate. You don't even need to stand. You don't even need to sing any of the songs. You can just sit there and like quietly like meditate, like use this time to like concentrate and and do certain things. And for me, I could never really understand that. I didn't really understand what she meant by just like using that time to meditate. But I think a lot of people do use religion in that way. And, And religion goes beyond these biblical texts and these you know, these almighty heroes that we kind of refer to, like Christ and the, the, all the fathers, and it just goes on and on, depending on which religion you're kind of breaking down, but by the end of the day, especially when I got into loving movies and becoming an art form, I really realized that it is kind of a religion to me, and it is it is a form of meditation when you're in a theater and the moments are starting and you you have the conversation after the fact, much like a congregation has together, where they go after church and they eat and they have a good time, so there's just so many aspects to define religion. And I think it goes so much beyond, you know, what we most think of from day to day. But yeah, in terms of like condensing it all to a film, I think that's why it's so hard because it's such a wide net to cast and try to like, you know, get everyone's opinions out there and make it feel respectful to other religions besides just the religion that you're trying to like talk about or or kind of show in more detail. So it's really complicated. I think that's kind of like the best way to, to kind of break it all down. But in the end of the day, I think religious films aren't a bad thing. I think when we look at Ben-Hur, it's this biblical epic. It was an action film to a lot of people. And it's funny to say that now because like when could you ever think of, oh, like religion being like a big epic you know, action film in some ways. And yeah, it's a great reference to bring in Thor Love and Thunder because it is very much about religion and gods in ways. Yeah, yeah, and I think if you uh, look at the Bible itself, not saying that like I read it cover to cover, but I, you know, I've taken my deep dives and learning about it. It is in its own right an epic. You know, it's an epic tale or tales really, and there's so much that you can get out of that apply that people have taken and applied to their own stories and their own ways of thinking and art. So it's 
it's it's a it's a real piece of of work in the sense that it's religious and and it's holy for those who believe in it but it's also a text it's art it, it explains so much to story and i think that when you get a film like ben-hur which compares itself to it dances around with it it's it's fascinating to figure out how it all lines up and, and what it all means so we're gonna try and get into that so first john let me ask you that question is ben-hur worthy of the best picture award of 1959. Ben-Hur. After a Jewish prince is betrayed and sent into slavery by a Roman friend in first century Jerusalem, he regains his freedom and comes back for revenge. In the prologue, a baby is born in Bethlehem, among the shepherds and visited by magi in a cave. In AD 26, Judah Ben-Hur is a wealthy Jewish prince and merchant in Jerusalem. Living with his mother Miriam and his sister Tirza, the merchant Simonides pays a visit with his daughter Esther. Seeing each other for the first time since childhood, Judah and Esther fall in love, but she is betrothed to another. After several years away from Jerusalem, Judah's childhood friend Masala returns as commander of the fortress of Antonia. Masala believes in the glory of Rome and its imperial power, while Judah is devoted to his faith in the freedom of the Jewish people. This difference causes tension between the friends and results in their split after Masala issues an ultimatum demanding that Judah deliver potential rebels to the Roman authorities. During a parade for the new governor of Judea, Valerius Gratus, loose tiles fall from the roof of Judah's house. Gratus is thrown from his horse and nearly killed. Although Masala knows that this was an accident, he condemns Judah to the galleries and imprisons Miriam and Tarza. Simonides confronts Masala and is also imprisoned. Judah swears revenge upon Masala. As he and other slaves are marched to the galleries, they stop in Nazareth to water the Romans' horses. Judah begs for water, but the commander of the Roman men denies him. Judah collapses, but is revived when Jesus gives him water. After three years as a galley slave, Judah is assigned to the flagship of the Roman consul, Quintus Arius, who has been charged with destroying a fleet of the Macedonian pirates. Arius admires Judah's determination and self-discipline and offers to train him as a gladiator or charioteer. Judah declines the offer when the Roman fleet encounters the Macedonians. Arius exempts Judah among all the rowers from being chained to the ship. Arius's galley is rammed and sunk, but Judah frees as many other rowers as he can and rescues Arius. Arius believes he has lost the battle and attempts to fall on his sword, but Judah stops him. After they are rescued, Arius is told his fleet had won a decisive victory. Arius petitions Emperor Tiberius to free Judah and adopt him as his son. Judah becomes a champion charioteer, then returns to Judea. Along the way, he meets Balthazar and Arab sheik Ildirim. After noting Judah's prowess as a charioteer, the sheik asks him to drive his quadrica in a race before the new governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Judah declines, even after learning that Messala will compete. Judah returns to Jerusalem. He finds Esther and learns she is not married and that she is still in love with him. Miriam and Terza contracted leprosy in prison and were expelled from the city. The women beg Esther to conceal their condition from Judah, so Esther tells Judah they died. Judah smashes his family's mezuzah, then seeks revenge by competing against Masala in the chariot race. Sheik Ildirim goats Masala into making an enormous wager on himself. During the race, Masala drives a chariot with blades on the hubs to disable his competitors. 
He attempts to destroy Judah's chariot, but wrecks his own instead. He is dragged behind his horses and trampled by another chariot, while Judah wins the race. Before dying, Masala tells Judah to search for his family in the Valley of the Lepers. Judah visits the leper colony, where he confronts Esther while she delivers supplies to his mother and sister. Esther convinces Judah to not see them. Judah visits Pilate and rejects his patrimony and Roman citizenship. He returns with Esther to the leper colony, reveals himself to Miriam, and learns that Tirza is dying. Judah and Esther take Miriam and her daughter to see Jesus, but the trial of Jesus has begun. As Jesus is carrying his cross through the streets, he collapses. Judah recognizes him as the man who gave him water years before and reciprocates. As Judah witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus, Miriam and Tirza are miraculously healed. Ben-Hur was directed by William Wyler. Written by Carl Turnberg, based on the novel A Tale of Christ by General Lou Wallace, and contributing writing by Gore Vidal, Maxwell Anderson, S.N. Berman, and Christopher Fry. Produced by Sam Zimbalist, with uncredited producing by William Wyler, Joseph Vogel, Sol C. Siegel. Music by Miklos Rosa. Cinematography by Robert L. Surtees. Editing by John D. Dunning. Ralph E. Winters and uncredited editing to Margaret Booth. Casting by Irene Howard. Production design by Vittorio Valentini. And costume design by Elizabeth Hoffenden. Ben-Hur starred Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur. Jack Hawkins as Quintus Arius. Haya Hararit as Esther. Stephen Boyd as Masala. Hugh Griffith as Sheik Ildirim. Martha Scott as Miriam and Kathy O'Donnell as Tirza. So, Ben, I would like to kick this off immediately. Oh, boy. And I think this is... It's an interesting conversation to have because I was both raised Christian and you were raised in a very... I don't know. I don't know. You're not just straight. You were raised Jewish. Okay. Raised Jewish. So I want to ask you straight off the top: Is this a movie with any sort of significance to you and your family? Because I know when I watched the Ten Commandments, you talked about how that was like your 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 kind of pastime film. I'm I'm blanking on the holiday name. I'm, I'm being very <laughs> offensive right now. Yes, <laughs> no, thank no, you. You're fine. Pa- Passover, and I remember you saying that it was kind of like a tradition that you guys would watch that. So does this fit into that kind of tradition? Where was there like a holiday that you guys would watch Ben Hur? No. Or, did any of your family kind of? Is there any significance for Ben Hur? No, none. It's this is not a, uh, a a film that Jewish people I think would watch. It has a lot of you know Jewish aspects to it, but this is not a, a Jewish film. It's also not even a real biblical story. That's what I thought, but why do you think that is the case? Because it, I know that from the book's point of view, we have you know a very different perspective, which a lot of people say is a book trying to convince people to, to kind of become Christian, whether the Jewish transitioning to, to Christianity. Why do you think that the film though, because the film doesn't feel like it's doing that at all. Right. I think we can kind of safely say that it's not trying to con- turn people to be Christian. Right. No, it, it's, I don't think it is. I, I think it's fascinating how re- religion and Christianity is actually portrayed and, and played out, but it's, you know, it's not like a Jewish person is going to be using the Bible for their prayers. This movie is the story of Jesus in many ways. And Judah's story is supposed to mirror that and juxtapose it. So this movie doesn't really hold significance to the Jewish story or to the Hebrew Bible because it Hebrew Bible doesn't go up until this time. Yeah. So I think that that's why it's not looked at by Jews as like the Ten Commandments or 
yeah, I'm trying to think of other movies, but just not looked at it that way because it's a biblical film, but it's not about the Hebrew Bible, biblical type of stuff. Yeah, sure. No, that makes perfect sense. I, I was, I was always really curious about that because I never really heard this film in that context in the same way that uh, the Ten Commandments is always spoken about. And I th- there's a lot of similarities, obviously not just Charlton Heston, but you know, there's tons of other similarities about the two films and, and I could go more into that later. But I was really interested because when you first, you know, we always do cold opens for the podcast and I, you mentioned, hey, this should be about possibly about religion and, and how this film is very religious. And from my point of view, you know, growing up and hearing stories from like my grandpa about this movie is all about the chariot race. So I was like, wow, this movie is very much like Gladiator. It's, it's action packed. Like it's this like kind of like crazy, violent revenge film. And then you're like, no, this is very much a religious film about Jesus. And I'm like, what? Like this is not <laughs> the same movie. Like and to me, it personally feels like two different movies because of that, where you have Ben her story while they're also trying to mix and kind of mirror his story with Jesus Christ but to me in the end of the day I think it does disservices to both stories but don't want to go too deep into it I just wanted to kind of jump off the top because I find it interesting that we both have this kind of like dueling uh, kind of growing up and our backstory is kind of similar to this in a weird way where I mean I'm not going to say we're trying to convert any anyone each other or anything like that but we have different backstories and eventually we're gonna have to murder each other in a chariot race as i think is what i'm trying to say (laughs) well the jew did come out on top john (laughs) so i'll just get trampled by all those horses (laughs) but it's interesting that you bring up the like well i didn't like because all i had ever heard too or seen about ben hur was the chariot race and when i first watched this movie and it's about you know the nativity scene and jesus birth I was like, what is Jesus in the chariot? (laughs) So it was, it was really striking to me that like that the film opens up on that. It even goes further with a scene of, of Joseph and, and his carpenter shop talking about Jesus. And then it transitions completely, completely away. So it's like, it's a B plot storyline, but not much of a heavy storyline. It's just very much in the background, which I find, to be the most like one of the most fascinating aspects of this film and how it mirrors itself and how it goes around it because for you know you want to be like oh this is such a christian film and and it really you know praises christianity it doesn't talk about christianity at all it talks about being good natured and being a kind person being there for your community which are the values that ben-hur picks up at the end of the movie but nowhere in this movie is it like does it feel so preachy like with today's world with Christianity, <laughs> which I know is so far gone from probably where it originally started. But it's fascinating to me because I feel like these values and these teachings that everyone is so amazed by with hearing from Jesus and the way they convey it and look at him are just be a good person, be good nature. Not saying that's a Christian thing, that's just a human thing. So that's why I find this movie, to, it's religious because it has those religious aspects. But by no means do I think it, it's like praise Christianity, become a Christian, you know, dial 1-800-CHRISTIAN, become a Christian right now. <laughs> it's not like that at all. And I, I love that. I love that because it's not trying to throw in your face. If anything, it's just trying to say that this is history, you know, that, that this was a moment in time. Not saying that the story of Ben-Hur, is, it, that's not real at all, but saying this was a moment in time. This is what the world was like. Um, so I find that to be the most fascinating part. So, yeah, so we start out. Jesus is born. 
is some fun, cool special effects that they do <laughs> with like the shooting star yeah. beaming down onto baby Jesus being born. <laughs> and then we get into uh, the year 26. Uh, great year, by the way. <laughs> and we get into the year 26. And we are in Judea. And we come. And Masala is the first person we see. Masala is this, uh, I don't know, I guess he's like commander of this, you know, Roman uh, Roman army that's coming in to kind of occupy. Rome has completely taken over the world at this point. And I love the opening scene because Masala and this other character named Sextus talking back and forth and they're talking about people, you know, as, you know, they call them rebel rousers. They call them patriots at time. So it's people who are like going against Rome and they, one of my favorite lines that come out of this is how do you fight an idea? Well, with another idea, so they're talking about how this rise, this unrest is all around them in the world, which isn't too far from when the time the movie was made and the time now to be watching it. And so I love that there's just this, you know, dialogue scene that it's very heavy, but it, it gets into these ideas of there's unrest that people want more people want out of Roman rule, but we can't let that happen as the Roman rulers. And then that leads to Judah Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston's entrance into the movie and uh, a scene that I is great because it's a reunion between the two men. They were friends growing up, but it has a lot of subtext to it. Um, and it's just, and a lot of people point to it that there's a lot of homoerotic subtext <laughs> to their reunion. The two of them reunite each other. They, you know, they hold each other pretty tightly. They're both like, they're looking like lovers when they stare at each other. Oh yeah. And uh, their spears together. Yeah. Ah. Was, yeah. <laughs> they take spears and start throwing it. A lot of phallus phallic imagery right there. But what it does is it sets up this, uh, I love using star Wars references This Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan brother brotherhood that you can tell there's a strong bond right there, but that is about to be crushed in 10 minutes movie time because of a disagreement because of the way they view the world because one is a roman one is a jew that is being occupied by the romans it's an interesting aspect of the film and i think especially the relationship because it's supposed to fuel that revenge and that betrayal that he has later on in the film but for me it's like why are we jumping in at this moment like why couldn't we get some of them when they were younger like if we're gonna why like why specifically start in this moment when they're like reuniting when we could have easily spent more time with like learning about them together, like maybe about some of their past, like maybe even like a little montage to show you about like them growing up. It just feels kind of jarring immediately to kind of jump us and and kind of throw us in with these two characters that supposedly they're telling us that they have a lot of history. And I just wish the film kind of like focused more on their, their aspect of their friendship and that betrayal. But it's it's important to kind of establish it. I know it needs to happen and it's like necessary in order for like the film to work and for Ben-Hur to get that quote unquote revenge because I don't really think this movie is much of a revenge story as people really make it seem. It's almost like the anti-revenge story, you know, like seeking revenge. Well, maybe I'm talking myself into it. Maybe that's what all revenge films are, mm-hmm. right? Going on your quest for revenge and realizing that you should have never approached it in this manner. But, you know, they're essential. I think uh masala played by stephen boyd is <laughs> it's, it's gonna offend a lot of people is a better actor than charlton heston and i just find charlton heston very wooden in general i think i'm getting to the point now where i've find this man very attractive but i'm not really a big fan <laughs> of his acting and i i think this is to date the best performance that i've seen him in uh in terms of chronological I, i've seen omega man which i actually really love that movie <laughs> 
Uh, he's a great movie, great film from the seventies, but I just, I, there's something about him that is just kind of off putting to me. I don't know what it is. He kind of just sticks out like a Thor, sore thumb. I, I, it's like hard to even like, kind of like capture in my head what it is, but he just kind of like pulls me out and I don't know if it's his voice or what it is. Obviously we can talk about how so many of these actors are all white, if not all of them. And we're talking about yeah. the middle East at this time, but I don't know. Tell me yeah. about what you think of uh, Charlton Heston. Yeah, I, I actually, it, it, it's fascinating because I would not say Charlton Heston, I would agree, he's not the strongest actor that we have seen from the classic Hollywood era. He's not someone that would be like, oh, if I had to pick like 10 actors, I don't think he would make that list. He's a fine actor. Uh, I think that he he clearly has a great voice. He has he's, he's a very good looking guy. He's very handsome. He's able to work within the Hollywood system. He's been able to work with some of the biggest filmmakers and he's done, you know, he did uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, working with Cecile B. DeMille and he went to the Ten Commandments playing Moses. Yeah. And he also was in Planet of the Apes. So he's had like these very iconic roles. It's no, it's not a career that um, that you look back on that's like, oh my God, I ha- like, he needed more. I think he's very celebrated as, you know, the person that he was and, and what he brought. It's funny because I think of like Russell Crowe as someone who you can pair kind of similarly, <laughs> you know, one for Gladiator. He's been in a lot of great movies, but no way. And I love Russell Crowe, but I don't think Russell Crowe is like the be all end all of actors. And I think that's fine. And so this performance was the pinnacle for Heston's career. And I, I agree. It's not the strongest performance. I don't think he's the best actor, but I think that he was pretty good in this role. I think that what he lacks with some of the dialogue scenes with some of his delivery, he makes up in with his physical appearances with the way he uses his body. I think he does a lot of great with his eyes. Yeah. I think his eyes, I think are convey a lot uh, with the emotions that he's dealing with. And I, and I think that the opening scene with Masala is a great way. Cause there's so much, like you said, you wanted a whole montage of their childhood. I got so much with just their embrace at the beginning that you can tell that they're, that they had a deep brotherhood. They have a deep bond. And, and I felt satisfied not getting more on their background. That I was okay. Okay. Let's keep this story going because you're about like 20 minutes into the movie and that is after a whole like opening, you know, um, overture that that, ha- that takes up so much time. There's a lot of overture and intermission <laughs> and lots of music being played in between to break up the pacing of the film, which makes sense for going to the movies at that time. So it's a three hour and 42 minute total runtime. And I find that what Heston is able to do throughout that entire time is keep you engaged, that he is the one thing you focus on in every scene because one, he is handsome and he knows how to make that scene drive. He knows how to make that scene go. So it's not the best performance, but I definitely appreciate it. And I think that it's uh, he does enough to convey these these deep emotions and, the, and this revenge that Judah is going after, even if it fails or not. But I also love Stephen Boyd as Masala. He, honestly, he's probably my favorite of the film. I thought I agree. I thought he was a little bit better than Charlton Heston. And he's just an asshole um, <laughs> in this movie. And we can go more, in, you know, we'll get more into that. But so the movie keeps going. They, uh, there's some tension between them. And what, you know, ultimately happens is Judah's like, please get your Romans out of here. There are people who are against you who don't want this. And Judah won't sell them out. So Masala feels betrayed by this. And then what happens as this like total accident, and I would call this an act of God. What happens is uh, Judah's sister, Tirza, She's like leaning over the edge during this parade of the new Roman general coming to the city. 
and just a piece of tile falls and it injures the general and then all of a sudden the the story just goes everything starts to explode and every and the and the story just it takes this complete twist and turn so judah he protects his sister and his family he's like no it was me that had happened he gets jailed his family gets taken to jail you know and now he this is where his first bout of like i'm gonna go save my family and he can't he can't save them he has to just you know submit to the roman rule to masala he can't get that revenge right there and it starts this journey that i think it's like almost 10 years worth of time which is a lot of time to be away from home to not be judah ben-hur but to be a slave to be uh, a you know a roseman in the roman galleys and he loses his identity in many ways and but one of the cool miraculous things that happens and where jesus comes back into the story is that while he's being transported through nazareth he collapses you know dehydration and jesus gives him water and saves him and this is not again not a, a oh my god look at jesus look at a great thing he's just here's compassion here's kindness which is what judah holds on to he brings that back up this idea of a man in the desert gave me water and showed me kindness at my lowest point yeah and to me uh, to be honest i thought that was like the moment of the film where i was like interested again and, and intrigued i think up until this point i just like where is this story going and you kind of get that you kind of get where it's going once he kind of gets enslaved and you kind of can see oh this is becoming this revenge he's got to break out of slavery and move forward it's not the point until you see jesus and in particular though the way they shoot him you know never showing his face it's always from behind it it was very like, regal in a way where I was kind of impressed that they like didn't you know want to give him lines show his face like show how handsome this Jesus was like they, they could have done so much and especially for a film that kind of goes all out there especially for its uh, action scenes and the boat scene and chariot scene it felt so reserved when it came to Jesus and it felt almost kind of like special and, and magical in a way where you could have him kind of be this force that kind of is there and and when the the uh, chain gang kind of continues to, to move forward uh, and all the slaves are walking away he, he just can't help but keep looking back at jesus as jesus standing there and i thought that was such a powerful shot and, and the editing is phenomenal i think in a lot of this film cutting between multiple characters and showing people's reactions and that moment in particular was like the first moment in the film where i'm like all right i am very much interested in in ben Hur's story and how it connects to, to jesus and and where this goes from here on out so it's interesting you bring that up about not showing Jesus and that you became fascinating that part because to not show Jesus is to make a comment that Jesus can't be personified. He can't be, you can't just show a picture of Jesus and like, that's what Jesus was like. Yeah. And I think that if, if you want to get into the Christian religious idea of it, Jesus is in all of us. Jesus is like this being that you don't have to give him a singular face. He is everywhere type of thing. And I find I found that to be fascinating as well. But what it also does, it says, okay, Jesus is there, but now here's Judah's story. Now, how does Judah keep going? Where, like, where does it go next? And and I love that because it, it, it keeps on interweaving them without them actually truly interacting. And they mirror each other because where Jesus was a, in his own way, he was a patriot. He was a fighter. He was a protester. Judah is not. Judah is not a protester. Judah is reserved unto himself, but he is willing to fight and he's willing to to stand up against the evils in the world. But he's also he he's reserved in the sense that like, yeah, okay, I'm a slave, I can't do much. But he won't fight that. He just accepts it. 
but what he does but when he does do that and when he does step up is in what i love the chariot race but this is i think my favorite part of the movie is the ship battle and what this whole sequence in, on the ships for many reasons why i love this so first off um let's just let's just go out there and just say it it's pretty goofy that they just use all these <laughs> miniature ships in a humongous tank uh you know in some back lot oh i love it, it it's uh it's fantastic it was made on a large man-made lake in italy where they were filming a bulk of the movie and it's uh when it first comes on screen when you see these little miniature ships you're like wait a second are those a bunch of big ships that they're just able to film <laughs> and then you finally realize that you're like oh my god those are just miniatures and you kind of are pulled out from the movie for a second it's like okay it's 1959 I'll be a little forgiving, but what this then does show and what the scene gets into is Judah's mental strength, how he is this person that can keep going, that he has this capacity to stand up, to be strong, to show the men around him that he can, that he, that he is somebody of note. And it's noticed by Quintus Arius when he, um, when he gets all the, the rowers to go at a taxi, attack speed, battle speed, and then ramming speed. Uh, which reminds me of just Spaceballs when they go to plaid. <laughs> um, and it's a it's a great sequence, too, because the editing is so... like The editing of that sequence, I just want to talk about that for a second. So well done. I mean, the amount of cuts that they keep on doing, they set it up so perfectly. It's like you're taking... Um, I'm trying to think of something that you can like spin really fast. I don't know. Fidget think, spinner? Yeah, think of like a fidget <laughs> spinner where you can go like <laughs> kind of slow at first. You're like, okay. And then you quick cuts or, or the cuts are just like, okay, here's Judah, Quintus Arias here's the guy who's drumming here's another slaver all right attack speed okay let's go a little faster a little faster and when you get to ramming speed it's cut 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 and the amount of i mean the 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 widescreen aspect ratio they were using this uh movie they were using mgm camera 65 and panavision so these this was a huge wide format and so so much film that they had to cut and so meticulous they had to do it there had to have been I don't know, maybe like a hundred different cuts within this like three minute sequence that they were doing. And it's, it's remarkable. And I, I love it. I love how the tension that it builds. And at the end of it, all the men collapse except for Judah. And again, that shows Judah's perseverance and Mary is kind of Jesus. Like who gets everyone around him can be like, uh, you know, mistreated or thrown down, but he'll be the one to stand back up. Judah will be the one to stand back up. And then in this intense battle, which in the close ups of in the ship, awesome the set design is crazy cool it's like one of those like rides that you'd be in like take the ben-hur ride when you're on the ship down in disneyland <laughs> and you're gonna get like rammed into the bible land yeah bible <laughs> land the water will come in and it'll be flooding it's all cool and then you ju- and then you go to these wide shots of the actual sea battle and it's just little flares coming off the miniatures <laughs> that is just so adorable i mean, i loved when they're ramming each other and, and the intensity of honestly it was really impressive where like the cinematography really is just i was kind of blown away by how they were showing other boats from inside of the boat and like you're right like if i had to praise this movie for one thing and one thing only it would probably be the editing and especially this sequence and the chariot sequence uh, in particular but it's just fascinating how many angles they have and, and how it's all coherent in a way that you can watch it and know, understand the geography of this boat, where everyone is, what's happening, and the way he's like constantly looking around, like seeing different things happening. And I, I just love how trapped they are down there because they can't even see really what's happening around them, which creates so much tension in the scene because we as viewers know when a boat is ramming towards them, but only like one side of the boat can really even see that. They're like screaming that a boat is about to ram them. 
and it creates like such a dynamic interaction that you have with the scene and this part of the movie where you're constantly like oh my god this is happening oh my god and you forget that you're looking at miniatures i think it's so good that it you honestly like your mind goes beyond that and you're like holy shit these guys are all about to die like is ben hur actually gonna die here you kind of like forget what you're looking at at a sense and what adds to like the epicness of this is the hand-to-hand combat scenes and we haven't really seen much hand-to-hand combat in any of the movies that we have seen um there's been some war sequences but not enough and it's pretty intense i mean yeah when from 2022 perspective there's so many movies that do it better that are not as good but this is i it's really well coordinated uh (laughs) judah sticks a torch in someone's face and that's even a cool like stunt work that they do and it's just there's so much coordination that had to go into this that it, it's very impressive and there are not many movies at this level of, of this scale of production that can accomplish this so it, it's it's fascinating and, it, and it's I love that you point out like your favorite aspect was the editing my favorite aspect was the cinematography I think the cinematography of this movie is so grand that you can have these like ship scenes these battle scenes and if, if you are engrossed in it because it takes up so much of the frame that I wish I was seeing this in theaters, you know? I wish that I could have experienced this because I, I you would have been so engrossed by it. You would have been so amazed by the sheer size of what you were seeing that you probably, in 1959, were not thinking, that's a miniature, I can tell that's fake. You're just thinking, oh my God, here's this battle scene on, on, on out on the sea. How the hell do they do this? Yeah, how do they do that? And, and how does Ben-Hur going to get out of this? You're... It's the first time in the movie that I was actually kind of worried for Ben-Hur, and that might sound like a slight in the film, but it's really, I think, the the highest point of tension up until this point in the movie, and I just love how it all culminates and how he has to kind of, like, you're already seeing him, like, learning and kind of grow as a person as he's saving the Roman uh, leader of the ship and, you know, puts him on that uh, scrap of wood and... It's it's interesting that he kind of wants to fall on his sword and kind of like he's ashamed that he lost the battle like he should have went down with the ship. I always find that like a really interesting character perspective, you know, someone who's just so hell bent on this kind of either if it's military or religion or they're so hell bent on succeeding. And if they don't succeed, then they shouldn't even be alive. Uh, and Jack Hawkins, uh, who plays the Roman soldier, is, is fantastic. I can't really think of the character's name right now, but he's Quintus fantastic. Arius. Quintus Arius. Yes, yeah. thank QA. you. QA. QA, was my yeah. shorthand for it. <laughs> JBH was my shorthand for Judah Ben-Hur because I couldn't just type that up every single time. <laughs> uh, I was taking notes in this movie. But, yeah, it, it's fantastic acting. It's uh, really great tense scenes. And then what it leads to is Quintus Arius bringing, you know, he's thankful for Judah uh, for saving him. They get picked up by another Roman ship. They're told that they're victorious in their battle, even though Quintus Arius feels that shame. Uh, and then they go to Rome and they come back to a, a huge celebration of them. And this is like we haven't t- touched on it yet, but the sheer size and scale of the amount of extras and the sets and the way they designed the film is fantastic. I mean, I, there had to have been 10,000 extras used in total for this movie. Oh, yeah. You can tell that they put a lot of time and effort to pack the frame Upon you know looking at stuff, William Wyler, director of the film, didn't want to just have these like you know he wanted to use the wide you know screen format, but he didn't want to have all this negative space, all, you know, just stuff in the background that just didn't really mean anything. So then they packed everything in. They add so much detail, and it really works, especially in these Roman scenes where it's crowds of people. 
there's a shot of Quintus Arius walking up a staircase and it's just the entire staircase consumes Quintus Arius. So it, it adds this epicness of the of what they're trying to convey and give off of, of with Rome and the scale of this movie. And then upon that, you know, Judah is adopted by Quintus Arius. He becomes the young Arius uh, because he has saved his life, because he kind of becomes part of this Roman culture. And for me, like, this is another part where Charlton Heston does he gets an A for his acting with his emotions that he conveys is that upon receiving the title of young Arius you can see this like oh my god like I've been a slave for this long I was once Judah Ben-Hur but now I'm this Roman but then immediately immediately he's like wait a second I'm Judah Ben-Hur and so to have that personality crisis where you've been something for so for so long you had your identity ripped, ripped away but then you have a new one it's a total like mind fuck you know it, it completely messes with him and i'm sure like like that's really what drives him to want to go back to judea and find his family because as appreciative as he is of quintus Arius taking him in he's also like wait a second i have a purpose in life i and my purpose right now is to get to my family and enact that revenge on masala and what he ripped through and what he ripped away from me yeah i wish i could like it as much as you do I find it kind of more frustrating and just so on the nose that it's kind of distracting. But, I mean, this is how the story's fueling. This is his mission and his his revenge quest. I just... And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's Heston. I, I don't know if it's how long, how fucking long some of these scenes are. They are so unnecessarily long. And I understand. Like, even before we even get to the boat battle and and where he kind of becomes adopted it's just so unnecessarily long that they're in that boat and it's just not forwarding the story enough and it's just kind of circling and just trying to like show the state that he's in but i think it just stays its welcome far too long and i think that happens kind of consistently throughout this movie and this is probably going to piss a lot of people off that i'm saying this because this is such a a well-renowned film but i think if you look back and I just don't think people talk about this movie that much outside of the battle scenes and the chariot scenes. And I truthfully think there's a reason because the rest of the film, I don't think is very engaging. I, I, especially if we, when we talk about Esther and his relationship to Esther, I think there's like no chemistry when it comes to their relationship. I don't really care about their relationship or their romance whatsoever. So what is Ben-Hur fighting for at this point? He like, his family basically right his his mother and esther is included there too his mother sister and esther why he really cares about esther i don't really understand but he's fighting for to get back to his family it's just like i wish we had more time with him and his family then like i guess they're just supposed to say like yeah you should take care of your family and go protect them because they've been enslaved like that's the right thing to do but i wish we just knew more about their characters i guess but i'm also at the same time saying like this movie's way too long and i want less of it so i don't know i'm kind of very conflicted when it comes to this movie yeah i i agree that there's a lot of dialogue in this movie that didn't need to be there scenes do go on for a while um the esther storyline you know it's they want love they want they want romance i mean actually i really like that initial scene with the two of them oh my god are you serious oh, well let ben, me well let me why? well it does you know you can cut out maybe a few minutes of it but you have the this great line where he says if you were not a bride i would kiss you goodbye and she says if i were not a bride there would be no goodbye to be said so that's a ah oh, that's beautiful and then the music that it, like miklos rosa he 
was so passionate uh, about his work on this movie. He, he really treasured it. And without the music in that scene, it would play out so differently. It wouldn't be as intense. It wouldn't be at, you know, it wouldn't reach that epic scale of romance. But this scene like adds this, you know, human and love element that of course sells for Hollywood. So like, is it necessary? Maybe not. But does it work for the story? It adds to, you know, Judah's mindset. It adds to his drive that he has, you know, purpose and he has family. He has love to go back to and to protect. So, yeah. So I think like what's interesting and just in our discussion on this movie so far, we're not really getting to key scenes because there is so much to get to get through that it would it wouldn't really work. And like we've gone with the wind. We went scene by scene because there's so much to unpack with it and it's like this movie is as well documented as Gone with the Wind but yeah you're right these scenes don't add up to much because what you're focused on is the revenge plot on Judah getting back to Judea to you know fight Masala and there's just little bits here and there that he runs into and dialogue that just has to be had I guess because it's being faithful to the book so as appreciative as Judah is of Quintus Arius of being a Roman he's like I gotta go back I got to go find my family. So he makes his way back. At one point, um, he is confused as Jesus, as maybe Jesus himself by a character, Balthazar, who was one of the wise men at the beginning that, you know, delivers the gifts to baby Jesus. And upon this, he runs into Sheikh uh, Ildirim, who's played by Hugh Griffith. And this is where probably the most like slap on the wrist. This is not appropriate. This is very racist thing because they, brown face Hugh Griffith who is a Scottish actor and they make him uh, you know Middle Eastern definitely not that um, so you kind of get a little taken aback by it I feel like we're not or at least I'm not as like gung-ho like that is so awful about it as compared to other movies that we have done I don't know why I think that it's just I it's one of those things where like this is the only moment where it happens no one in this movie is from that area clearly they all have very fair white skin color so you would have to con- condemn the entire movie which we could have done <laughs> yeah it's not like around the world in 80 days where it's no. just like laughable about how ridiculous it is it's just kind of like you i don't know at this point we kind of expect it in a, in a way where it's like yeah it's kind of shitty that we're at that point where we have to accept it but it's kind of the way it is and i actually think it's a pretty He's a, probably the funnest character in the film, I would say, maybe. Like, he's the most, like, joyful and kind of lighthearted in, throughout the film. So, at the same time, I'm like, I kind of enjoyed his character and I enjoyed what he brought to the movie. But, yeah, it's so fundamentally racist to begin with by having, like, brown face on. It's it's kind of insane. But, yeah, yeah it's just, like, kind of they put you in this, like, milieu where it's, like, you just – everything is that. Everyone's white. It doesn't matter if you're Roman or Middle Eastern. It's, uh, we're all white. Kind yeah. Of. It, it's it, muddy. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not great. But the story continues. He meets the sheik, and the sheik has these four Arabian horses that he says were descendants of the pharaoh's horses, which is pretty cool. And, um, and I say that as a Jew. I don't know if I should be saying it's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> regardless, um, so he meet these four horses. They're very well trained. Judah believes that he, as a charioteer back in Rome, he won a few races uh, as the young Arius. He believes that he can kind of, you know, take over and race these horses. 
to which the sheik is like, hell yeah, because the guy who did it before you couldn't do it. <laughs> so you see some, you know, the horses are very well trained. They really respond to Judah, which the sheik is amazed by. He treats them as his children, maybe even as almost his like wives and partners <laughs> in certain ways. He really loves these horses. And and he asked uh, Judah to race uh, against Masala to take down this Roman to, you know, it in a way like it's symbolic because it's a Jew taking down the Roman, you know, getting him to revenge through this race. And one of the ways that uh, the Sheik can kind of have his own revenge is that he bets against Masala to his, himself and bets what he's called a thousand talent. So it's like a thousand gold coins at four to one odds. So he got great odds. No one believes Judah's going to win. And Masala is like taken aback by this, but they decide to race. And first Judah returns to Judea. He finds his home empty. He reunites with Esther. He tries to find his mother and sister, you know, begging Masala to tell him where he is or where they are. And Masala like won't tell them, but then he convinced then he tells the Romans to release him from prison. And upon finding his mother and sister, they have leprosy. So you don't get to have that reveal yet of what they look like. I was kind of hoping you would get a little bit more than what we got. You know, it wasn't as like, Oh my God, they have leprosy is the way they portrayed in the movie. Uh, but it adds this other storyline, this other factor to what happens to his mother and sister. Ben Hur has no idea that they have leprosy. He just know he's told that they are dead by Esther. So stupid, <laughs> John. Yeah, I, I hate this plot line. But do you why do you hate it because I, it because it's so just another reasons. element to the story? So many reasons. Well, why? It takes up way too much time. I think you could cut literally his mom and sister could be cut out from this movie entirely. They could have just died. Well, what would be his revenge? His revenge is just. For killing his mom and daughter, for his so you mom think and that sister. If Masala had killed them initially, that he would have just yeah. Then it's like a real revenge. Then he's like well, trying if, to get his take his life for their lives. Like it's a classic revenge story. But that but so essentially he thinks that they do die when he does return, and that's yeah, why he's so then, even more gung ho to take down Masala in the race. And then when after the race happens, we're gonna touch more about the race in a second. But after the race happens, he finds out that they're still alive despite beating Masala, but despite Masala dying, yeah. he's like, oh my god, Like now I have to go find them. And he he was about to... I think he would have just won the race, and I think he would have just like gone off into the sunset type of thing, because he would have been like, well, my revenge has been enacted, like I can't save my family. But he, you know, but then he finds out that they're still alive. I think it's fundamental, because I don't know who his mom is. I don't know who his sister is. They're just saying, this is a really strong, nice man, he should just love his mom and love his sister. And I'm like, that's true. You should love your mother. You should love your family and your sister. But it's like, who are these characters? Why do I care other than that you're telling me I should care about them? If they take up so much time in this movie for them to talk about their leprosy, which I just find so fucking ridiculous and goofy because they look goofy the way they're hiding. It's so overdramatic and melodramatic. And I know it's supposed to be this like serious disease and it's, it was a really big threat for people back in the day, but it is so goofy and just so over the top. And from the very start, I don't know who these characters are. You're just telling me that I should care about him because that's his quest for revenge. This movie doesn't is not remotely subtle at all. And it just doesn't even give the time to even let me care about these characters. And it's doing something where it's trying to put the audience ahead of 
Ben-Hur, right? Knowing that we know that they're still alive because the scenes are showing us that they are, but he doesn't. And it's supposed to be building this tension. But for me as a viewer, it does the opposite. It just pisses me off. It's just like, I don't care that Ben-Hur doesn't know that his parent or his mom and his sister are dead because I don't, one, don't really care about these characters because I don't really know who they are. You're just telling me I should care. Two, I already know that they're alive. So the drama is just to see that to see him see that they're alive and it's just like it that's not really interesting to, to me at all and at, what this film is most remembered for is the chariot race which is this like amazing climactic moment where you would think the movie would end at that point but it doesn't it has to go back to the leprosy and the family and how he needs to find out they're alive it's just frustrating to me and it's really what it comes down to and it's frustrating because this is a movie where it has so many great elements and i just like cannot get past the faults it just distracts me so much and it's one of those movies where i'm like this could be like truly a masterpiece to me if it weren't just so bogged down by some of these elements and i I feel like it's probably bogged down by having to tell these story elements from the book and and tying it in uh, from the stories of jesus and the bible it just feels like it it needs to tell these does that incorporate these aspects of the story and i just i just don't buy it so it just makes me not care at all about his quest what i care about him been her doing is winning that chariot race and it's amazing so can let me pose this because um a revenge film like the revenant which okay. at the beginning of the movie you have a little bit of what leonardo dicaprio's family was like before they are killed sure so but there's not there's nothing like enough to like really drive it i feel like they don't give you enough to like make you fully understand like the whole backstory but it's enough there that you're like okay i can get into this story and for me that's what i get from this movie is like all right like yeah i'm not gonna get the flashbacks yeah i'm not gonna get dialogues between tirza and and ben-hur but at the same time i feel like there is still enough there that can show me through context that like okay judah is close to his mom he's close to his sister they they maybe his father must have died when they were young he's grown into this like you know this not a father figure, but this, you know, this man figure in the family, patriarchal figure. That's what I'm looking for. And he, and he's respected. And I, and I feel like that's like, like, I don't need to be bashed over the head with exposition with, with all, with so much like background, because I feel like I do get enough there. I understand that like, there's so much going on in this plot that to introduce now they have leprosy that now he has to go find them. (laughs) type of thing that I can understand where it just becomes enough because you're right. I do think like after the chariot race, you kind of just want, all right, just give me like 20 more minutes of this movie and we're golden, but we get a full, essentially another full hour. Uh, you know, I got like 45, 50 minutes left and it's a lot. And I, and I don't disagree, but it's to, I think if you were to take elements out of it, I would have taken it from like the first act. I would have tightened that up a little bit more. I would have, you know, taken away like when, Judah returns home and he come and he finds Simonides back in his home and that whole conversation between him and Esther there that could have been tightened up that could have been done away with I think you could have saved 15 minutes right there and you also if you take out the 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 intermission the overture the entreact that you know that that takes another 20 minutes out of it so if you now you're at almost a three-hour movie and you could find 10 minutes here or there so if this movie was two hours and 50 minutes which is closer to like a godfather type length would you have been more into it? Do you think that would have been more fair for this movie? The thing is, I think there. this is like a two-hour story stretched out over three hours, in my opinion. I think a tight 
two hours where we mainly focus on the chariot scene. We focus on the battle of the slavery. We cut out <laughs> the leprosy sh- stuff of the film is, is important because it's, it's supposed to show at the end with, you know, Jesus and the blood running throughout all of the land and eventually healing them. Like there's important aspects to it, but I just don't think they're important enough to, to keep in this film for how long it is. I just, it gets so bogged down in caring about this mother and the sister and I just, I just, there's no reason to. It's, it's almost like a, a romantic film where it's like a will they, won't they. It's like, no, stop. I know they will. The whole point of this movie is to make them will. So I just, I can't get behind it because it's so frustrating that they keep doing this like will they, won't they with Ben Hur. Like, are they alive? Oh, they are alive, but you can't see them. Like, it's just not compelling. Like this aspect of the story. But I also agree with you. Like, there's so much I think could be cut down from this movie. Uh, besides that I mean I think most of the scenes could just be tightened in general and I I said like I love the editing in this movie because I do love the editing when it comes to like the scene and and cutting in between characters that's great but what it comes down to is William Wyler having the final edit and removing scenes cutting scenes shorter like that's not really up to the editor all the time really right so yeah I I get that so much I, I also think like another aspect to think about too is the amount of people who wrote this movie this the script I, they started development in this movie uh i think back in ni- starting 1953 uh yeah they started development back in, in the summer of 53 and the amount of times that the script got written over and over and over again over the years this is also a remake it was made in 1925 so it was a silent movie a silent epic then that was revered and so they just kept rewriting and rewriting the script and i think that there was probably so much that had to get left in because it wouldn't have explained other things well either. So I, that is like the fault of the screenwriters to a point and to the, to MGM, the studios, the producers, because they were trying to do so much and they want to have so much out there for Wyler for the final product to be that. Yeah. That there was just too much and you had to leave it all in there. It's a long movie. I'm, and people get, there are people who, who hate anything that's over two hours <laughs> This is three hours and 42 minutes. Like, I get it. It's a long movie. There's a lot in there. So, yeah, you can always have the argument of, like, oh, they should have taken this out, taken that out. But it's what we have. And, and so I, I, I feel you on, on a lot of it. Yeah, and, and I it, lo- love long movies, too. Yeah. So No, I know you do. And uh, and we've, we've watched plenty of long movies together. And the leprosy thing, it's, it's a fascinating, I think, detail to include because you're not expecting leprosy to, uh, to be the thing that that takes you know that haunts them but it's just an element and something that they have to overcome and has to persevere through so in a very long way let's get back to the chariot race because that is the piece de resistance the one of the best cinematic sequences moments i think out of any movie ever i try to think of like epic things like the sinking of the titanic pretty you know that that's a crazy sequence I think of the Godfather and the ending, the killing of the five families. Like that's a crazy sequence. I you know I you know I think of Morbius and Morbius, you know, Morbin at the end. Yeah, Morbin at the end. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of like great classic Hollywood sequences, and I think that this is the one. Like when you cut together the montage of montages, that like this scene has to be in it. Yeah, definitely, and. You know, for scenes that go over and, and very long, I think someone could even look at the parade that they do in the very beginning of the film. 
uh, which I heard, or I think I read that it was exactly replicated from the original silent film, because this is the third remake. I don't know if we've said that yet, but I thought it was uh, fascinating that they took so much time with the parade. One, because it just shows us this insane set. Like, we've come across some films while doing this podcast where I'm kind of blown away by the set that they've built, the, how many extras they have, like the the over uh, the amount of like awe, that cinematic magic that you have. But there was something so like unnatural about this cherry race and the stadium that they built. It was like I I was looking at something where I'm like, how how is this real? Like, what am I looking at right now? <laughs> like, how is there no CGI or any sort of like like technical enhancement done to this like how big the stadium is the huge statues like you can kind of tell there's matte paintings involved but you're kind of like it's it's very similar in, to like gone with the wind where you're like where does like the real stuff end with the matte paint like it is fascinating yep. and the amount of time it takes them to go around and do this parade it it's so important for us as a viewer because you're like oh this is this person that's their color this is their horse this is their chariot like it is like painting everything getting us ready for something that's really visceral and fast where you're like trying to keep you know keep control of what's going on in front of you on the screen so i just i mean i loved how much time they really took on this and and just how much is like just packed into this scene yeah it builds up the tension there are six sources say that there are six to seven thousand extras to fill the stadium that they were in you're right this is something that you look at you're like how did you pull this off without what we have today in modern filmmaking i mean there the amount of cgi and i i like cgi i think that's it's very important to the way films are now are made nowadays because you do so much with it but when you look at ben hurry you're so impressed because of what they're able to do and how they're able to pull it off it's it's amazing it is it's a feat that i don't that I don't even know if modern filmmakers could even pull off <laughs> what what they did in the cherry s- sequence because they wouldn't have the skills to fall back on to know what to do. And I'm not and, and it's just crazy and what's to me what the craziest aspect of all of this is that this actually wasn't even done by William Wyler himself. He had second unit directors um uh to help uh you know make this make this part. He had Andrew uh, Martin and Akima uh, Kanat. Akima Kanat was more of a stunt coordinator. But they were the ones directing this whole chariot sequence. And so one, two, just say, okay, here you go. I'm going to pass this off on to you <laughs> to have to make is like, I'd be shitting myself having to do it. The u- second unit directors typically don't do nine, uh, 10, 11 minute chariot race sequences. They're doing more like insert shots here and there, <laughs> li- little bits, you know, stuff that they do quick things that get put into the movie that you wouldn't really know uh, is important to the movie. But the fact they had to do this entire sequence themselves is pretty astounding, and so they and they do a they do a crazy job. It, it's so well done. The stunt coordinators need to get so much praise for how they're able to do this. The there's been rumors that people died on this. No one died. Uh, everyone confirmed who worked on this movie. They were like nobody died. There was I think Charlton Heston said that if anything that amounts to an injury, it was just a cut on the chin for one of the stunt coordinators. So it's it's crazy because. Yeah. The stuff that happens in this movie, you're expecting someone to, like, the people getting trampled, people having to run out of the way, horses falling down, people getting flung out of the chariots. You expect someone had to get a major injury. But no, they're all professionals. They all did it right. It's fascinating because there's moments where people are being trampled and you're like, that is a real person. Like, that is not even a dummy. And you can, like, see them moving and reacting. 
And yeah, I think I'm blanking on their names right now, unfortunately, but it was like a father and son who were, I think, part of the stunt team. And the son is, I think, the person who got like a cut on the chin. Yeah, it was Yakima Kanut, who was, it was his son. His son, right? Yeah. Um, and what's so fascinating is that they kept that part in the film, right? With Charlton Heston kind of like bumping. It's it's right when one of the chariots kind of crashes. I think it might even be Masala's chariot when it crashes. Uh, no, it's not. It's before that. He crashes over and the chariot basically yeah, bumps Judah, off Judah's the like ground, chariot, right? Yeah, it like flings up in the air and it looks like Judah gets like thrown up into the air. And that was a stunt person and they left that in the movie. That was not supposed to happen. Yeah, and then shot it as a close-up so you could see that it was actually... Charlton Heston, you know, recovering yeah. from that, so it looked natural. Yeah, totally. and uh, well, first off, I, let's take a second for the again the cinematography and the close-ups. Wow, <laughs> wow! Yeah. The cinematography, like the, I think they used a picture car or not a picture car, a car to you know drive around it and capture all this, all the yeah. movement. These close-ups, the chariots going so quickly, like you, like when I was watching the Broadway Melody, like the fact that that what thirty years later. Literally thirty years later at the Broadway Melody, that you would get something like that, I'd be like, no way! Unbelievable! Yeah, yeah. it's it's unbelievable. It's yeah. so cool. It's really insane. And I remember reading that uh, they used like a really fast Italian car to kind of keep up with it, right? And they were trying to, and they kept getting like a faster car because the horses were so fast that they literally couldn't keep up with it. And I think they got to the point where it was like so many of our shots are out of focus because we're just trying to track and follow these actors and the movement and the horses. That there's a uh, a term that people use called like a cutting ratio like how much you you film how many f- rolls of uh, film and feet you know in terms of how many feet of the film roll how much you shoot compared to what is actually shown in the final product and people say that it's 263 to one so they shot for instance like 263 feet of film for every one foot used in the final sequence so it seemed like that it was so hard to film that they were like we will burn through as much film as possible in order to get these specific shots but you would have no idea watching this yeah. like it feels so precise so calculated and especially when it gets to the editing how quick it is and how you still know exactly where everyone is it's like unbelievable and you we look back at like 10 years a little less like seven years to the greatest show on earth and how clunky the special effects are in that scene when they're doing uh like fast movements it's just so clunky and you look at this and it's so precise and perfect there's like no compositing in this no. movie versus great yeah. show on earth where it relied so much on compositing yeah it was all compositing and you know it's so fascinating to watch this even you could watch this as like a short film on its own it's that compelling the way they introduce all the characters you kind of know where the stakes are with you know ben hurry even like kind of like praying to god like you're understanding where everyone's motives are and the kind of drama and the tension and then it's just an amazing action scene that's non-stop yeah and speaking of judah praying to god this is one of my other favorite moments and and parts of the dialogues because he is saying to god you know i seek vengeance right now so and he acknowledges that, you know, for uh, someone in the Jewish faith, you know, you're not really supposed to seek revenge. You're not really supposed to seek vengeance. You're supposed to be more good natured. So the fact that he's saying, I am seeking vengeance right now. So do with me what you will, God. <laughs> like my like whatever you do to me is fine because I'm going to go out there and I'm going out there for revenge. And he there, there's so much cool imagery. There's so much, you know, tension that gets built up, you know. Uh, the sheet gives Ben Hur a star of David. 
to represent the Jews, even though I was reading there are some historical inaccuracies with that. The Star David wasn't used until the 15th century by Ashkenazi <laughs> Jews. So this would not have been used in the year 26, or actually it would have been somewhere in the year 30s at this point. <laughs> uh, That's because, because of all the time. Yeah, so there, there's actually a lot in this movie that would have been used, like the mezuzah um, that is used in the doorway. It would not have been a mezuzah. Yeah, yeah can, we, can you tell me what that is? Because I have no so, idea what that is. I. Uh, in the most like simplest way, so mezuzah is like a, it's a there's a little scroll, a piece of paper that has a prayer on there, and you put it in this. It's not a tube. Like a vase it, almost kind of. What was that? Like a vase almost. It's not a vase. It's but it's I'm gonna call it like a tube, and that's lack for a better word that you put into the entrance of a doorway, and in tradition you're supposed to touch it and, and kiss it when you enter into a doorway when you see the mezuzah. So it's a more traditional Jewish thing. I have plenty of mezuzahs in my house. Next time you come up to my parents' house, John, I'll show you what a mezuzah yeah, is. Yeah, I was going to say, is there one in this apartment right no, now? There's, no, there's not one in my, in my apartment. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to my parents if they are listening. I'm sorry, nanny. Yeah, I don't have yeah. a mezuzah. How dare you? I don't have a mezuzah in my apartment, but uh, I had plenty of mezuzahs growing up. Um, but re- uh, regardless, so the tension is built up. Judah's wearing blue. Masala's wearing black and red. Masala's black horses Judah has white horses they build the tension they do the parade around and then it goes and it goes it, it's just madness it's chaos right away everyone is going rotating the first thing that immediately jumped out to me upon watching the movie from the first minute I was like where's the score there's no music at all so the decision by the filmmakers to have no score to let the sound design to let all the the sounds and, and, and the crashing, the chaos take up the entire, you know, design of the sequence is fascinating. And, and I think it's great. They do that and they keep going and going around. Masala is taking people out left and right with the spikes he has on the end of his wheels. And finally he's like neck and neck with Judah and he tries to take down Judah. He starts to whip at Judah, but Judah grabs the whip and starts whipping. Masala I love back. that moment. So great. Yeah. Like Judah, like this is just, awesome this is epic this is the scale and and it lives up to i remember when i first watched this moment i was like this lives up to the hype this lives up to everything i've ever expected this chariot race and more so i was i was so happy of how it goes and then judah takes down masala masala's chariot collapses and he falls off he gets trampled he's bloodied up and judah wins the race and the music comes back in and one of the first things i noticed was judah is he's happy that he won but he's also looking at masala whether that's with eyes of revenge or eyes of care, it's really hard to tell if he still cares for Masala at points. And he wins the, this race and he's crowned with a wreath of, of leaves, whereas Jesus was crowned with a crown of thorns. So there's that juxtaposition. He is praised. He is treated like a god. Pontus Pilate, you know, cr- he crowned both of them. If you want to look at that kind of comparison Jeez. between Jesus and Judah, yeah, and he and he gives Judah all this praise for just winning a chariot race, but it's symbolic. He, the Jew, takes down the Roman. the The Jews conquer that day. It's a it's a feat for you know the sheikh and in everyone in the Islamic religion. So it's it's so it, it it's so meaningful what this win does for Judah and his story, and and it it ends with. Judah going to Masala as he's dying. Masala is like refusing to die. He's refusing to get his legs amputated to be saved because he wants to see Judah. And he kind of throws it back in Judah's face where he's like, your mom and sister are still alive. They're in the Valley of Lepers. And he's saying this and he's like, oh, he's like doing this and revenge as he is dying. He knows exactly the conflict that he's giving Judah and Judah 
is like you know he's like stunned by this he did not expect that to be the case so now it judah is like well what it was this all for i got my revenge on masala but now my mom and sister are still alive i i have to find them but they have leprosy so it's kind of like what was my vengeance what was this all for even though he won and he was celebrated he's like i have no idea what to do now yeah it's a really interesting twist for him i I think i kind of talked about how i feel about that whole twist and having to be alive and them as characters but before we get to the leprosy makeup which i'm sure you have thoughts on as well I wanted to talk about how amazing and how like viscerally violent this movie is at times, and and especially with the makeup, and especially with the the boat scene and the chariot in in particular, because the the big action scenes where people are going to get injured and hurt. But one, it's incredible seeing Masala fall off and gets trampled, and how real it looks. And you're it's fascinating because you're seeing him progressively get more bloody and beat up and like you're like yeah of course that's what's naturally happening in the film of course that's what it would look like but it is done so well up until this point where you're like how is this 1959 like this looks so good when you see masala laying on his like medical bed before uh ben-hur gets there he's just so beat up and his skin's like stripped off and it looks real and disgusting and nasty and and the blood is like that visceral bright red and even when ben-hur's being whipped like the fact that he's whipped and then the next shot you can see the blood like pooling from where he was whipped like it's like there's so many small details in this movie that like really blew me away just how precise they were yeah it's certainly a bloody film probably the bloodiest (laughs) that that we've seen i don't know if there's really been much uh, beyond that but it's it's so visceral it's so in your face and uh now we get to the part of the film where i have to agree with john where you could have cut this down a little bit so there's like 50 minutes 45 minutes left of the movie and he still hasn't gone his mother and sister he doesn't really know what to do he's won the race and now we're getting a lot more of the jesus storyline jesus comes back and this these are like the final days of jesus's life of jesus's story where the Romans, you know, they crucify him, they uh, they they go after him. You know, people are watching Jesus before he's crucified. They're watching him give the Sermon on the Mount. And it's funny because Judah is like, ah, screw this. I don't really... It feels almost like Mel Brooksian where he's just like, what are all those people up there doing? <laughs> I don't need to be a part of this. <laughs> I have other things I got to worry about. I have other things I want to do. And this is where some of the juxtaposition that some of the characterization of Judah that Ben that Charles and Heston brings into it is Judah he he again he doesn't know what to do with his life so he's so cynical he has so much negativity that when he hears people talk about this Jesus character this this person who's who's saying you know blessed are the merciful and and saying how everyone has to be treated equally and and all this goodness and kindness that he's giving off He's so like, why? Like, what is this for? Like, what? Like, what's the point? You know, there's no miracles. There's, you know, I, I fail. Like, he feels almost like a failure because he couldn't achieve it. And I, and it's fascinating because when Jesus dies, you know, Jesus, the, I man, I'm forgetting the exact words that that uh, that Judas says, but he's essentially what he hears from Jesus, like to that that everyone's misguided that, that it's not their fault father he said you know father is not their fault and for in the on the opposite direction you know judah's like screw everybody it's all their faults i like 
everybody's at fault for for all this like there is no goodness there is no kindness in this world and it's up until when he when he finally finds his mother and sister again he sees them and you can see again this is another great moment for charles and heston because when he finally does go to the valley of the lepers when he when he tracks them down he finds them and he sees his mother for the first time he's not disgusted by her by the leprosy he's so happy just to see her he's like he's happy to see his mom because he sees the beauty in her and that's what brings him life again so it's again these juxtapositions these comparisons between judah and jesus while they're not trying to say that judah is like the messiah they're just trying to say that like here's these two characters that have these interweaving storylines that are so that you can compare them to just based off of their reactions and their and and how they act to the world and and how they view these moments so judah gets his mom and he gets tears is dying in the valley of lepers and they have this idea that well if we find jesus we find they say this young rabbi uh that we he can save you guys based off of stuff they hear so they go to back to judea and that's where they stumble upon the crucifixion the start of jesus of his death and what pontius pilate does to him what the romans do to him so they're watching uh, upon this and one of the funniest it's actually a really funny moment they run into a, a blind man who's telling them about this and then they they mention that they're with lepers and he's like oh my god lepers what the <laughs> fuck and he's yeah. like get the he's hell like, out of here yeah, i'm out of here and then you get to the crowd and everyone sees like Ma, like miriam and tirza have leprosy and they're and the leprosy makeup is nothing really it's just like a few like blotches on their face so it's nothing i've seen there is a play that i saw that had leprosy in it and wow that was some, that leprosy. Was some good makeup that was some good leprosy makeup <laughs> Bang, uh, it was Bengal tiger in the Baghdad zoo with robin williams fantastic play uh if you've never heard of it check it out it's, I, it's very Wait, good with robin williams yeah with robin you saw Williams saw robin williams on stage yeah i did what yeah i did uh yeah i've been very lucky i've seen some wow. really yeah so we can talk about that later that's for the next podcast episode <laughs> maybe but regardless uh yeah so the leprosy makeup isn't like anything like that um that crazy so you're kind of like when you are waiting to see what they look like you're kind of sitting there in anticipation like oh my god how disgusting is it going to be and it's like <laughs> oh okay it's underwhelming it's underwhelming sure, yeah so they see this they they're seeing they're watching jesus getting crucified him carrying the cross and Judah is like, wait a second, I know that man. And he recognizes him for as the man who gave him water. And again, like this idea of like, he helped me. He saved me. He gave me hope. So he keeps, he like follows the, not the parade, the, well, I guess it's a parade of people. Uh, parade can be a bunch, a bunch of different things. He's following the people as they're walking behind Jesus and he's waiting for this moment and he sees Jesus stumble and he grabs water for Jesus and he runs out to give him water it, again like mirroring exactly what jesus did to him and without seeing jesus's face he sees this man helping him and he's almost stunned that in these like final moments that someone is being compassionate towards him that someone is being kind and and, it, and i think like that's what jesus was trying to say all the time like he you know i was near the crucifixion but it definitely seemed like jesus was in this state of mind of like i'm at peace that whatever happens happens like i like my father god will save me and 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 take care of me so jesus dies everybody's watching uh balthazar who's one of the wise men is like completely stunned by this uh judah watches the crucifixion uh esther takes miriam tears out of judea they realize there's probably nothing they can do they thought their only hope of jesus saving them that's gone and 
Jesus dies. Jesus watching that. And then the rain comes as if like God it not is almost smiting everybody. And he all the rain watches Jesus blood. And all of a sudden, Miriam in tears that leprosy is cured. They go back home. Judah goes back home to them. And then he realizes again at the end that it wasn't about vengeance. It was about finding love, forgiveness, finding compassion. And they're not saying directly in the movie that he becomes a Christian. But there's definitely some like, hey, like Judah was really affected in, in a good way by this. And he kind of likes what all these people are saying about Jesus. And but it doesn't directly say that. So, again, it's one of those. And it's a moment where, again, where I'm like, yeah, this is not promoting Christianity. This is pro- promoting good faith and, and, and kindness and compassion for humans just in general. It doesn't have to just be a Christian narrative. And the movie ends. And um, that's the end of Ben-Hur. So it's interesting too that people will still call this like a, a a film promoting christianity and that's kind of why i wanted to bring it up to you in the very beginning like is this a, a film that kind of your family has spoken to or spoken about a lot or watched or if you have any other friends who are also jewish like wh- has this ever come into their lives or is this a part of like a routine or a tradition for your family and, and from my experience and from what i've heard it never really has been seems to just be like a classic Hollywood film and in fact so much that I didn't even really know that it was religious to start off with but in a way after watching this film and talking to you and it's also why I wanted to bring up our differences of growing up is this film is very much about having differences with religion and person and personal like differences and and uh, you know when it comes to what Masala deals with and, and how he wants to run Rome or be involved with Rome but it comes down to having difference of opinion and religion I think this film is almost about not borrowing but also being very open to both sides and vice versa right having a christian be open to a jewish tradition or um, some sort of uh, religious aspect of their religion that they can kind of open themselves up with we don't need to be fighting and against each other in in any sort of way we can kind of like work together and learn and grow and be better humans in general and i think that's kind of how this film comes off to me by the end of it it feels like a not you should combine these two religions but everyone should be open and and willing to hear each other out and and not resort to violence as as the answer right so to me it doesn't promote christianity at all it promotes a a way of thinking being open being not closed-minded essentially yeah i couldn't agree more this movie it it has all the action it has all the epic grand scale but it, it still has that this like heart to it that it's trying to say to lead the world in kindness to lead your life of kindness that revenge is not always going to be the be all end all and at the end of the day it's your family that drives you it's what that's what gives you the strength and the power to survive and to go on so um there's a lot i feel like is to be said about ben hur there's a lot to dive into i you know we can't hit everything. I think that there's so much like behind the scenes aspects of this movie. That's so fascinating. It's why I love these like big epic movies, like Lord of the Rings. There's so much you can look at like gone with the wind. There's so much document, you know, documents that are out there that talks about these movies to the scale, to the people that work behind it. There it's, there's so many fascinating things and this movie achieved so much and, and it, it's just great. And I love the chariot scene. I love the boat scene it's not the strongest of epics, but it's an epic film that I think deservedly so should be talked about and referenced. So let's jump into the 32nd Academy Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Mr. B.B. Kahane. 
Academy, ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and welcome to the 32nd Annual Academy Awards presentation. The Academy is again graceful, is grateful to the producers, distributors, the artists, and all other segments of the industry who have made it possible for us to bring this program to you as, as a public service. Why are these awards so important, at least to us? I think it is because they represent the judgment of our co-workers, our peers. They decide which of us has done something of outstanding merit. Nearly 2,200 members of the Academy have voted, and tonight we will hear the winners. The pictures of this year have been rich and varied. They have been rewarding experiences for all of us, and it seems that it is only proper that the people who made these pictures should also be rewarded in some fashion. And that is what we propose to do tonight. The 32nd Academy Awards were held on April 4th, 1960 at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood, Los Angeles, and the event was hosted by Bob Hope. The Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Bob Hope. And Academy Honorary Awards went to Buster Keaton for his unique talents, which brought immortal comedies to the screen, and to Lee DeForest for his pioneering inventions, which brought sound to the motion picture. Best Special Effects goes to Ben-Hur. Visual Effects by A. Arnold Gillespie and Robert McDonald. Audible Effects by Milo B. Laurie. So, Ben... I mean, we've talked a lot about the special effects. I don't think there's any bigger compliment about a special effect, the visual effects, than saying, I didn't see any, right? And when you look <laughs> at the chariot scene and you see how just amazing and in awe it is, it just looks natural. It looks real. It looks like they found this huge stadium and somehow got the rights to film it. But we know that's not true. We know there's so many special effects involved with creating the chariot scene, the boat scene, and many other sequences. Even the beginning with Jesus' uh, shining north yeah, star. Yeah, shooting know? star. Yeah, it, it's it's great. It, it does so much. You're right that the best special effects are the effects that you don't notice. And this movie does a lot to promote stunt coordinators, to uh, show what can be done in filmmaking that isn't just an actor acting on a screen. And actually, this movie is the se is the second time a Best Picture winner has won for a visual effects category. The first one being Wings, but all the way back to the first Academy Award. So it's been 31 years since another Best Picture winner has gotten a special effects award, and this one wins it deservedly so. Moving on to Best Film Editing, this one goes to Ben-Hur, Ralphie Winters, and John D. Dunning. This is Winters' second and final career Academy Award. He previously won for King Solomon's Mine back in 1950, and in 1991, he received the American Cinema Editor Editor's Career Achievement Award, which is the fourth year that the award existed, and this is Dunning's only career win. Other notable work that he worked on, uh, he collaborated with Frank Capra on the Why We Fight series, he edited Julius Caesar, the, the 1953 movie, and he also edited the television show The Man from Uncle. Best Costume Design Color goes to Elizabeth Haffenden for Ben-Hur. This is Haffenden's first of two Academy Awards. She would go on to win for A Man for All Season in 1966, and her final two films were Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Fiddler on the Roof. 
So I think the costumes are pretty essential in this period piece. It's an epic, so we're talking about hundreds of costumes, so thousands. many extras. We're, we're in the tens of thousands. Yes, I think. thousands. Yes, you're right. And I think it really helps, especially in the chariot sequence, really define which characters we're looking at. Well, you know, directly showing us their kind of backstory, their history, while they go throughout the parade and kind of name each person. The costumes is really what stands out, and like it kind of defines each character. I really, I really love the costumes. Ben, anything else to add about the the, the costumes? Yeah, I think speaking on the chariot race, the way that you know it, everyone is kind of sectioned off in the chariot race, but you can tell who is who, and again, like the sheer amount of costumes they have to make is is astounding and it's it truly a feat in of itself best costume design black and white went to some like it hot to ori kelly this is the only oscar win for some like it hot for the evening and this is ori kelly's third and final academy award after winning for an american in paris and lay girls yeah, since this is the only win for Some Like It Hot, I don't. You said you haven't seen Some Like It Hot, right, Ben? No, I have not. But it is a, it's a classic. It's a such a funny romantic comedy. I mean, when you look at this film and compare it to Ben Hur, it couldn't be more different. It's probably a film that helped inspire other, you know, screwball comedies that we kind of got in the future. The, the cross dressing aspect as well is like a huge part of the movie and. I think some people look back and, and find it a little bit offensive the way they kind of approach it. But 1959, what do you expect? You know, it's still a hilarious movie with a great performance. I think Jack Lemmon is honestly hilarious in this movie. And so is Tony Curtis. They play great leads throughout the movie. And obviously you got the one and only, uh, which I, of course, am blanking on her name. Can Marilyn you help me Monroe. Out? And yes, of course, you have the one and only Marilyn Monroe. And she's phenomenal. It's it's the first movie that I saw her have like a full performance in, and I was like, "There's a great reason why she's a legend." It's not only that she's fits in well; she's very funny, she's beautiful, she looks amazing in all these costumes. I'm not surprised at all why this one for best costume design, best cinematography, color goes to Robert Surtees for Ben Hur. This is Surtees' third and final win, having won for King Solomon's Mines in 1950 and The Bad and the Beautiful in 1952. His other nominated work includes Simmerin, Mutiny on the Bounty, The Graduate, The Last Picture Show, The Sting, and A Star is Born from 1976. He also gained a reputation for being a stickler for precise color control and proper exposure of the negative, arranging his lighting and camera angles so he could provide the lab with the best negative he could make. And I think this clearly shows when you look at the remaster, I think it was from 2001, it looks phenomenal. I think this may be one of the best transfers that we've seen from any of the best picture winners that we've watched. And I think we could probably thank Sertiz for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the cinematography is some of the best. Uh, it's so good. The I love the widescreen format. The uh, Just the amount of coverage they get, the way everything, is, like the depth in this movie is crazy good. Uh, this is, it's some of the best shots I think we've seen. You can tell instantly the scale because of the cinematography of this movie and uh, it's fantastic. So uh, if you ever have the chance to watch this movie, I think on a big screen, you probably should take it because um, I know I would. Moving on to best cinematography, black and white. This one went to William C. Meller for The Diary of Anne Frank. This is Meller's second and final Oscar. He won previously for A Place in the Sun in 1951, which was directed by George Stevens, who had also directed The Diary of Anne Frank. Best Art Direction Color goes to Ben-Hur. Art Direction by William A. Horning. 
and Edward Carfano, set direction by Hugh Hunt. This is a posthumous award for Hornin, who had previously won a posthumous award for Best Art Direction for Gigi in 1951 at the 31st Academy Awards. Like producer Sam Zimbalist, Horning was awarded his second Oscar posthumously, as both he and Zimbalist had died while the movie was still being filmed. To date, Horning is the only person ever to win posthumous Academy Awards in consecutive ceremonies. Following Gibbon's retirement in 1956, he became the studio's supervising art director. His first Academy Award nominations without Gibbons was for Les Girls and Raintree Country in 1957. This is Carfano's third Academy Award in this category, and he previously won for The Bad and the Beautiful and Julius Caesar, which Hugh Hunt won as well, bringing his career total to two. Best Art Direction Black and White went to The Diary of Anne Frank. Art Direction by Lyle R. Wheeler and George W. Davis. Set Decoration by Walter M. Scott and Stuart A. Reese. This is, Will- this is Wheeler's fifth and final Academy Award in the Best Art Direction category. He first won, dating all the way back to Gone with the Wind in 1939, and then he received three more Oscars for Anna and the King of Siam, The Robe, and The King and I, and he also received a nominations for Rebecca and All About Eve. This is Davis's second Oscar, Scott's second of six, and Reese's first of two Academy Awards. Best Sound goes to Franklin Milton for Ben-Hur. This is Milton's first of three Academy Award wins, and he would go on to win for How the West Was Won in 1962 and the Grand Prix in 1966. Best Song goes to High Hopes from A Hole in the Head. Music by Jimmy Van Heusen, lyrics by Sammy Kahn. This is Sinatra's standard used as a campaign song by John F. Kennedy during his presidential election the following year. Sinatra portrays a low-life dreamer named Tony, whose old friend Jerry Marks, now a rich man, expresses interest in his plan to build a Disneyland in Florida. The film predates Walt Disney World by 12 years, until Jerry notices that Tony seems too desperate when the latter cheers for a dog upon which he bets heavily. The movie ends with Tony, his lady friend Eloise, and his son Ali singing High Hopes on the Beach. A few other notes, Sammy Davis Jr. performed the song with the children's chorus at the 32nd Academy Awards ceremony, and also, I looked up, because I was like, hmm, High Hopes. Why does that title sound so familiar? And then I realized it was in a Goofy movie. So I was like, that's amazing. I love it. So without further ado, let's listen to some High Hopes. Move a rubber tree plant, but he's got high hopes. He's got high hopes. He's got high in the sky apple pie hopes. So anytime you're feeling low, instead of letting go, just remember the end. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Andre Previn and Ken Darby for Porgy and Bess. Previn won the previous year for Gigi, and he would go on to win for Irma La Duce. 1963 and My Fair Lady in 1964. This is Darby's second of three Academy Awards and he previously won for The King and I in 1956. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Miklos Rosa for Ben-Hur. This is Rosa's third and final Oscar after previously winning for Spellbound and A Double Life. Uh, You can probably best remember our conversation of Rosa back in our episode on The Lost Weekend because of his use of the theremin and how much we love that score, but he did not win for that one, unfortunately. But 
Uh, Ben-Hur is widely considered Rosa's cinemusical masterpiece. It's one of the largest film scores ever composed. Its intricate Wagnerian web of Le Motifs has received extensive study. Roger Hickman describes it as the last universally acknowledged score created in the classical Hollywood tradition prior to Star Wars and one of the most influential scores on the Star Wars generation. I would kind of agree with that. It's a pretty huge score. There's so much that is packed into it. There's so much that it has to cover for a three hour and 40 minute runtime. The amount of movements, the intensity that it brings, I think it highlights many scenes. I think without some of the score, it, some of the scenes would not work as well. So Definitely. I think you could say John Williams was probably heavily inspired by the scores and, and probably just Rose's career in general. And I think the music honestly helps carry some of the scenes. Some of the scenes that I kind of found bogged down by that were getting too long. It, it's a really epic kind of a lot of strings involved. It's very kind of beautiful and epic and heartfelt and very emotional. And yeah, like you said, I, I looked up the score on Spotify as I try to kind of go through and listen to some of the music before we record. And it is a huge soundtrack yeah. where it's unbelievably long. Best short subject cartoon goes to Moonbird. Best live action short subject went to the golden fish to Jacques Cousteau. Best documentary short subject goes to glass best documentary feature goes to serengeti shall not die best foreign language film goes to black orpheus from france black orpheus won the palme d'or at the 1959 Cannes festival as well as the 1960 golden globe award for best foreign film and was nominated for the 1961 bafta award for best film best screenplay based on material from another medium goes to Room at the Top to Neil Patterson based on the novel by John Brain. This is Patterson's only career Oscar win. So this is the only category that Ben-Hur was nominated for that did not win. So the the nomination went to Carl Turnberg. He got the WGA credit. The Writers Guild gave him the credit for uh, for the screenplay. But it's also the probably reason why he didn't win the Oscar because there was so much contention on who actually wrote the script. There was, as we said before, there was a ton of writers who got uncredited work, who had worked on the script, who had written dialogue, who had pretty much written full scripts for it, but didn't get the main credit that the WGA decided on. So I think that because of all that conflict that was going on, it seems that because because of all this contention, that that's the reason why it did not win the best screenplay award. So it robbed Ben-Hur of a potential clean sweep and winning 12 awards. Best story and screenplay written directly for the screen goes to Pillow Talk. Story by Russell Rouse and Clarence Green. Screenplay by Stanley Shapiro and Morris Richland. Best supporting actress goes to Shelley Winters for The Diary of Anne Frank as Petronola Van Don. This is Winters' first of two Career Academy Awards. She would go on to win for A Patch of Blue in 1965 and she is one of two actresses, the other Diane Weiss, to win multiple Best Supporting Actress awards. Winters donated her Academy Award statuette to the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam. Best Supporting Actor goes to Hugh Griffith as Sheik Ilderim. This is Griffith's only career Oscar win, and he would go on to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor in the 1963 Best Picture winner, Tom Jones. So, Ben... Do you have any uh, any other uh, choices here for best supporting actor or yeah. what? Yeah, I thought Hugh Griffith he was he was fine in this role, but I was shocked that Stephen Boyd for playing Masala didn't get the nod here, and I think he could have 
he should have won for this. I mean, he was fantastic. So I don't know what the politics were really. Hugh Griffith gives a great, you know, a steady performance, a little racist. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if like that, like everyone kind of being racist themselves loved it and uh, thought it was a good performance. But I was, I was a little shocked that Stephen Boyd didn't get the nod himself. Uh, I thought that he was more deserving and he brings more to the story than the Sheik does uh, overall. Is, is that only like blackface, brownface win ever? Uh, I'd have to look. <laughs> I mean, I think we would have hit it by this point already, right? Unless there's another film where it's heavily involved, which is possible because it's 1959 well, and we're still well, seeing it. For Luis Rainer won uh, for the good, the good Earth. I think is the name of the movie back, oh. uh, back in the 30s, and she. That's right. Yeah, yep. she played a Chinese woman, Someone's, and yep. she is definitely not Chinese. Yep, yep. You're right. You're right. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm right. <laughs> Best actress goes to Simone Signore. For a room at the top as Elise Esguil. So Signore's only Oscar win. She was nominated for Best Actress for her role in Ship of Fools in 1965. In total, she won an Academy Award, three BAFTAs, a Cesar Award, an Emmy Award, two Golden Globes, and the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actress for her many roles. Uh, and for this award, she beat out Doris Day, Audrey Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn, and Elizabeth Taylor. So... Man, she really just knocked it out of the park with that one for a room at the top. Best actor goes to Charlton Heston for Ben-Hur as Judah Ben-Hur. This is Heston's first and only Oscar win. He was only nominated once for this role in particular for best actor in his career. And in 1978, he was the recipient of the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. Heston's career spans six decades and over 100 films. His most notable work includes playing Moses in the Ten Commandments and the Planet of the Apes, and he also starred in the 1952 Best Picture winner, The Greatest Show on Earth. At 2 hours, 1 minute, and 23 seconds, Charlton Heston's performance in this movie is the longest to ever win an Academy Award for Best Actor and the second longest to win in any, in any category, trailing Vivian Lee's performance in Gone with the Wind that clocked in at 2 hours, 23 minutes, and 32 seconds. For context, the second longest Best Actor winner was Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood at 1 hour and 57 minutes. Heston recalled in his autobiography that at, the first, that at first he had doubts about playing the role, but his agent advised him otherwise. Don't you know that actors take parts with Wyler without even reading the damn script? I'm telling you, you have to do this picture. I'm telling you, you have to do this picture. <laughs> that's definitely how he said it. Yeah, that's definitely how he said it. So... Yeah, Charlton Heston gets the award. I, you know, people look back on it like, oh, he doesn't deserve it. And, you know, he wasn't that great of an actor. But what does that really mean that he doesn't deserve it? For two two hours, two hours and a minute and 23 seconds he was on screen. That's a lot to have to command. And it wasn't, like, bad. Like, I don't think he gave a bad performance. It's not like, not like Dale Day-Lewis and there will be blood. But you shouldn't take that away from Charlton Heston. Like, this was a lot to take on. This was a huge role. It's the blockbuster of blockbusters at the time. So fuck it. Why not give it to him? And like that's what it, sometimes it should go for is to some of the actors who give these epic performances that take it to grand scales. And, you know, there are the other movies that won all these awards like Ben-Hur, like Titanic or Lord of the Rings. They didn't win any acting awards. They weren't even nominated for acting awards. So... There's a feat in and of itself, so I John's shaking his head at me. <laughs> I know it, it wasn't the best performance. It's not Clark Gable and it happened one night. It's not Frederick Marsh. It's you know, it's not 
many of the best actors we have seen. It's no Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca who didn't even win Best Actor. And it's definitely not James Stewart. No, it's in Anatomy of a Murder. <laughs> because I've seen Anatomy of a Murder and Jimmy Stew kills that movie. He is amazing and he deserves more Oscars. And he is definitely more deserving of this award than Heston is. But I'm he, sorry. But he Call won. me out all you want. Okay. He's I, won, yeah. But in terms won. of this year and this movie, he is so much better than Charlton Heston is in Ben-Hur. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just, I without mean, a doubt, I, I would say I'm not so. saying you're wrong. But how many times, you know, it, it's this is going to be a thing throughout all the Oscars. How many times have we brought it up already? How many times are we going to bring it up that, oh, this person won, but this person should have won because this gate It happens. It, it sucks in its totality, but... I got to give credit to Charlton Heston still. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the best performance, but for two hours of, of screen time that he had to command, he does a pretty steady job. And I, I still don't think it's like anything that's, Oh my God, it's horrific. How, no, how I would dare never you do that. No, no, I would never say it's bad. And it is impressive. Don't get me wrong. It's very impressive that he could give a performance that's that long. It's very intensive. I imagine like the many hours, like I think this movie took like nine months to make. So he was probably there for at least six months, probably grinding on, I just think of the chariot sequence and how long that probably took and how he is very present in a lot of those shots. It's not like you're shooting it from behind and it's like a stuntman. It's very much Charlton Heston. I think you're right. It's definitely something that I'm not going to just say is bad or it's it doesn't it's not deserving entirely. I think James Stewart's give a, a better performance uh, as an actor in a film. Uh, what I will say about this category, the last thing is that I find it fascinating that Jack Lemmon, I mean, he's a huge star at the time, really funny guy. He's nominated in this category for Some Like It Hot, which I just find so fascinating because I think about when is the last time that someone got nominated for like a rom-com or a romantic comedy for best actor? Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah, it's not really something that happens today. Um, I, I'm trying to think like there's not really much, you're right. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's something there that someone will find and, and let us know, but yeah. It's uh, it's an interesting thing that kind of jumped out to me. I was like, oh, fascinating. Moving on to Best Director. This one went to William Wyler for Ben-Hur. William Wyler became the third and the most recent person to win more than two Best Director awards following Frank Capra and John Ford, as well as the only person to direct three Best Picture winners following Mrs. Miniver in 1942 and The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946. He directed more Best Picture nominees than anyone else at 13. So just one to think about, like, this guy directed Mrs. Miniver, and he also directed The Best Years of Our Lives, and he went to Ben-Hur. Like, the, there's not really a common thread in any of those movies. So it's crazy that, like, the work that he's done and, and how diverse it really is. And under Wyler's direction, there were 14 actors who won Academy Awards out of 36 total nominations these roles include Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, Audrey Hepburn, Barbra Streisand, Frederick Marsh and Harold Russell, Greer Garson and Teresa Wright, and of course, Charlton Heston and Hugh Griffith. So to direct all these actors and actresses to their Academy Award wins is crazy. So I'm not saying that we have like the Wyler's the goat, but there is a conversation to be had as like how influential he really is to cinema to filmmaking to acting and he's not a name that gets brought up enough i feel like when we look back and you know there everyone wants to go to the tarantinos the scorseses the spielbergs you know of the worlds and and bong joon ho is now this great director and, and and there's so many directors out there that that are great they're all great at their craft 
But William Wyler definitely put people on the map. He put styles of filmmaking on the map. He was an innovator and he's someone we can, should look back on and, and be thankful for, for his creation, for his work. And it's just not a name that I hear enough uh, out of the old Hollywood days that I think that he deserves more of a due than we actually give him. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, even when he's right behind Frank Capra and John Ford, people always talk about those two names way over William Wyler. So you're absolutely right. And the nominees for Best Motion Picture of 1959 are Room at the Top, The Nun Story, The Diary of Anne Frank, Anatomy of a Murder, and the winner, producer Sam Zimbalist for Ben-Hur. The epic drama Ben-Hur won 11 Oscars, breaking the record of nine set the year before Gigi. Suck it, Gigi. (laughs) Ben-Hur remained the most honored motion picture in Academy Award history until Titanic equaled defeat in 1997, followed by The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King in 2003. Ben-Hur was the third film to win both Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, a feat not repeated until Mystic River in 2003 as well. Ben-Hur is currently... As of 2017, the last MGM film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. And regarding Zimbalist's death on the film, he actually collapsed of a heart attack in Rome while they were filming. He was then later carried on to his villa locally, and he later died at his villa. Zimbalist was buried at the Hillside Memorial Park in Culver City, California. He received a posthumous Oscar for the film and remains the only person to ever posthumously receive a Best Picture award. His Oscar was accepted by his wife, Mary Zimbalist, who was who made a speech in honor of her late husband. Ben-Hur was even more profitable than, quote, Vadis, becoming MGM's second highest grossing film at the time, again behind Gone with the Wind, making Zimbalist the producer of the second and third highest grossing film at the studio. So I just want to talk about the 11 wins. 11 is a number in Oscar history that is sacred. Uh, It is a number that I don't know if it will ever be reached again. I know La La Land tried to contest to get it, but it didn't get there. It got the 14 nominations, which is a record for the amount that you can get. Um, But the fact that it won 11 and it didn't at the time that like Titanic and Lord of the Rings came out, those won so many technical awards. So the fact that this also won acting awards and those didn't is significant. And it's just a number that has stood the test of time since 1959. A film has not won more than 11 awards. This is the marker for the amount that I've won. So it's uh, it, I, I love that stat. It's not just because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan because I proved Lord of the Rings is the greatest film ever. <laughs> I'm winning 11. But it, it just puts you in this stratosphere. And, I, and we're going to get into our ratings in a second. But I just want to, like, that stratosphere is significant. So 11 Academy Awards win. That's the record. I don't... It's going to be hard for me to see that record being broken if it like Dune could have had that chance, I guess. If Dune could have been nominated more, it could have won more, but didn't get there. So you would need a film to that scale to get it. And I just don't see it right now, but it could happen. Anything is possible uh, and it would be remarkable. So before we give our ratings for Ben-Hur, here are some other stats and figures. Ben-Hur has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average Rotten Tomatoes rating of 8.17. The top critic percentage is also an 86 with an 8.8 rating. The audience score is an 89 with a 4.27 out of 5. IMDb gives it an 8.1. Metacritic gives it a 90. And again, it won 11 Oscars out of 12 
Awards. So, John, what did you rate Ben-Hur? I give Ben-Hur a 72 out of 100. Wow. And it's particularly, you know, I'll quote someone who could have been Ben-Hur, an alternate reality. Ben Lancaster was offered the role for Ben-Hur. Burt Lancaster. Thank you. I say Ben Lancaster? (laughs) Yeah. So, in an alternate reality, Burt Lancaster was offered the role. Obviously, we've spoken about Lancaster multiple times now. He's a huge actor, a big name, and a producer, as we noticed uh, in the past couple of episodes. And when he was asked why he didn't take this role, he said that the script was a bore. And to be honest, I think I agree with him. I think the worst part of this movie is the script. There's tons of just sloggish dialogue, just things that I think could definitely be cut out to make this a better overall film. But when it comes to, like, the epic nature of the chair race, the boat scene, you know, you have the aspects of bringing Christ into it, which I think is actually very well handled, and the amazing editing and the score. There's definitely a reason why it was nominated and won so many awards, but still had to give it a 72 because I think it is, it was for me actually quite hard to make it through this whole film because I think of some of the sluggish script elements. But, Ben, tell me what you gave Ben her. So, uh, it wouldn't be inappropriate of me to talk about just ratings in general so i thought about this for a while i gave (laughs) when i first watched ben-hur i loved it i gave it a 92 when i first watched these movies i sort of gave it and then upon watching this movie and then watching rewatching other movies and discussing other movies we had a great conversation on gg even though i hated that movie where i didn't change my score i gave it a 15 because of just pure hatred for that movie but the conversation that we had with Austin and that episode really it made me feel a little bit better in this score, but I didn't want to budge and change it. But when I'm looking at this score, I was like, hmm, I like still like the movie, but I don't feel as strong as my like for it. So I wanted so I was like, okay, I gotta bring it down a little bit. But I was like, but if I bring that down, I gotta bring others up. And and <laughs> I, I've been thinking about it for a while. So I gave Ben Hur an eighty five. At originally it was a ninety two. So an honor of that original score, I changed one movie in our ratings. Oh my god, this is the first time. This is the first time I'm retroactively doing this because wow. I didn't know I, be- I didn't know about this rule. What the hell? I'm breaking the rules. <laughs> we can break the rules whenever we want. There are no rules. <laughs> All about Eve. Originally I gave it an eighty nine. And I love that movie more and more when I thought about it, when I talked about it, and I still love it as much. So that now is a ninety two for me. All about Eve gets to the ninety two. Wow. I bumped that up because I was like, because when I when I was reading this movie again, I was like, man, I can't have it above some movies because of X, Y, and Z, but I can't have it below other movies because of X, Y, and Z. So I gotta bump it down, but not bump it down too much. But I also gotta bump some other things because of uh, of feelings about it. So All About Eve gets a ninety two, and Ben Hur eighty five for me. It's a, I love this movie. I, I really don't think it's like a bad movie at all. The 85 is more reflective of it's a very long runtime of a movie. Some things could have been taken out. It could have been tightened up a little bit, but by no means does I, do I think it's bad. It's not the strongest of acting performances overall. It's still pretty good, though. I love the chariot sequence. I love the ship scenes. It really does everything for me from an action standpoint. The costumes, the scale, it's epic. I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. This tickles my Lord of the Rings like fancy. It's not that. it's not the best. I'm not saying it's the best, but it's pretty damn good. 85 feels like a very solid movie to me, so I'm very happy to give it that number. So, John, right now, your average rating out of 32 movies watched is a 71.8, and I'm at a 74.9. So we're 
pretty much a third of the way there whenever we reach the end, if we ever reach the end, because this can go on forever and ever <laughs> with the Oscars. So, John, I got to ask you that question. Is Ben-Hur worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1959? Yes. And I give it a 72. Some people might be like, that's low for saying yes. And I think it's because it's it really is an epic. It is huge. I think the chariot scene alone is like worthy of watching the film. I think it's astonishing how they achieved it. And I think purely it's pushing film forward. And it definitely is. And I don't think that has to be the qualification for every Best Picture winner. But I think when you look at the other you know nominees here, I, in terms of a film, what I would rather go back and watch, what I like more is probably Anatomy of a Murder. I really think it's a phenomenal film. It's really modern in terms of its subject matter, and it's a great court drama, which I'm usually not even that big of a fan of, so I think that says a lot as well. But in terms of what's pushing the medium, what's astonishing, what is truly an event film, I understand why people are rushing out to see this, why people were going to see it multiple times. It's because this is truly a film unlike you know anything we've probably seen so far. It's massive, and that's why Ben-Hur from 1959 is worthy. But Ben, you tell me. As Ben, I give Ben her. <laughs> I think it's worthy. It, it's so worthy. It it does everything it, it you want. The epicness is so grand. Everything that John said about it pushing the medium. The I, I couldn't. I, I really I say it all the time, but I really can't imagine going to the movie theaters and seeing this for the first time and being like, "Whoa, like now this is a movie type of thing." Like I love it. The again, the chariot race so scene is so great. So. It's worthy. It, it's one of the worthiest movies. 11 Academy Award wins. That is a record. It, it just adds to why I feel like this movie is great and grand. So absolutely worthy. So, John, that's it for our talk and Ben-Hur. Is there any final thoughts, feelings you want to convey uh, or talk about for Ben-Hur? I just think over the past two hours, we confirmed that uh, a born and raised Christian and a born and raised Jew can be best friends. <laughs> We are the best of friends. If not, there's some homoerotic subtext. We love throwing spears all the time. <laughs> we love it. So thank you for listening. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is worthy. worthy. You may conquer the land. You may slaughter the people. But that is not the end. We will rise again. Uh, you live on dead dreams. You live on the myths of the past. The glory of Solomon is gone. Do you think it will return? Joshua will not rise again to save you, nor David. There is only one reality in the world today. Look to the West, Judah. Don't be a fool. Look to Rome. I would rather be a fool than a traitor or a killer. I am a soldier. Yes, who kills for Rome. And Rome is evil. I warn you. No. I warn you. Rome is an affront to God. Rome is strangling my people and my country, the whole earth. But not forever. And I tell you, the day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.